Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. A man and his friend was playing golf one day, and one of the guys was getting ready to set up a chip shot. As he prepared to stroke the ball on the green, he saw a long funeral procession on the road next to the golf course. The man took off his golf cap, got on his knees, and bowed his head to pray. His friend said, wow, that is the most thoughtful and touching thing I've ever seen. I can't believe how great it was for you to stop your golf swing because of a funeral procession passing by. What thoughtfulness. The other man replied, well, I feared that was the least I could do, seeing as how we were married 35 years. (laughs) You know, sadly, that's what a lot of us do. We just give God a nod as we continue on with business as usual. But once again, this morning, Jesus is going to show us what real love looks like. Now, I could have included these verses in last week's sermon, but it was so important, I felt that it deserved two Sundays. Last week, the emphasis was on Jesus serving us. This week, it's going to be on us serving one another. Verse 12, please. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Humility turns the structure of authority upside down. Now, earlier in his ministry, Jesus had said flatly, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Jesus then tells us that we are to wash one another's feet. But why would I humble myself and wash feet? Because after humiliation comes exaltation. Are you tired of being in the pits? Want to be lifted up to a higher plane? Do you want to experience joy on a level you've never known before and happiness in a dimension that you've never understood? The key is humility. Just as the branch that bears the most fruit bows the lowest, also the one who is really fruitful in the things of Christ will bow the lowest to serve others. Now, first, I want us to see that humility is unannounced. Jesus didn't rise from the table and then boldly announce, I am now going to demonstrate humility. He didn't stand up and say, Disciples, you will now see love in action. Watch me. Take notes. A few photos will be allowed. No, he just quietly got up and washed feet. He just quietly took care of the situation. You see, once someone calls attention to his or her deed of service, it then becomes contaminated by pride. Now, one doesn't announce a humble deed either before or after it is done. Now, it is true that Jesus broke this rule after washing the disciples' feet, but that was only for the sake of instruction and illustration. What does he do? Of all the illustrations he could use, he washes feet. But let me tell you what that is not. It is not just tolerance. In our modern culture, a lot of people define love as accepting everything everybody says. Love is accepting all beliefs and practices, and hate is disapproving of all beliefs and practices. But authentic love has a washing component to it. 
Real love is engaging with somebody, not just saying everything is fine, everything is fine, you're just fine. Not at all. Real love is to look at somebody and get a vision for where they should be and what they could be. It's to get a vision of their cleanliness, to get a vision of what they could be like. If you got all the barnacles off, if you got all of the dirt off, if all of their chains were removed. No, real love is engagement. It's washing feet. There's also a counterfeit of love, which really isn't Christian love at all, but it's actually the opposite of Christian love. It's the opposite of kneeling love, and yet in this world, it is called love. It goes like this. There's a kind of worldly, selfish affection that says, I love you, I want to have you, I want to own you, I want to meet my needs through you. But kneeling love says, I love you, I want your best, and I want your freedom. I want to bring you to God, and I will do anything it takes to get you there. Even when I don't like the things that you do, I will love you. That's how kneeling love talks. Now, Jesus Christ says this is the meaning of life, to have a life that is characterized by that. Now, let me just be upfront here. If you're going to be one who loves, it means you have to be willing to be interrupted. Notice not only interruptions, but you also have to have involvement. Jesus didn't stand up and say, hey, there's a strange odor in here. I want to tell you guys what you should do, that you should wash your feet before you eat. I'm glad I didn't grow up back then because my poor mother had a hard enough time just getting me to wash my hands before I ate. But Jesus didn't say, Peter, you big heel, don't you see your foot is cruddy? James, can't you see your soul is dirty? That was a play on words. I don't know if you call it that. See, heel and soul, they're part of it. It's not really important. Um, <laughs> No, Jesus didn't give a lecture on dirty feet. He simply got down on his hands and knees and washed them. Also, humility includes serving one another and not just the Lord. The reason why I say that is serving the Lord is the greatest delight in the world, while serving one another is not always as rewarding. The Lord is worthy of service, and he's easy to love. But our fellow soiled and sinful brothers and sisters are not always lovely, and they frequently fail to express gratitude. Nevertheless, genuine humility doesn't seek reward other than for the joy of the service itself. Now, if you ever think of the golden rule, you'll probably hate it. Why? The golden rule says you must put yourself in other people's place. Right now, you probably have somebody in your life that you're ready to give up on because they've hurt you. Because they're clueless, because they're hard, because they're numb, because they're disappointing to you, or because they've mistreated you, and you're just about ready to completely give up on them. But the golden rule says you have to put yourself in their place. And so, when you are stupid, do you want people to love and serve you anyway? When you're foolish, when you're bad, do you want people to love and serve you anyway? If you were chasing somebody, trying to kill them, and you fell off a cliff and you were hanging there by the edge, would you hope that person would say, let me save you anyway? The golden rule says you owe whatever you want. 
Thus, it is absolutely unjust not to put yourself in other people's place. Do you want to be loved and served even though you act unbecomingly sometimes? Sure you do. Do you want to be loved and, and served even though you're sometimes foolish? Sure you do. Do you want to be loved and served even though sometimes you've done some awful things? Once again, sure you do. Moreover, we are get even to fulfill Christ's example in regard to spiritual defilement and cleansing. That's really what this parable is all about. According to Christ's words to Peter, the cleansing of the feet symbolizes the spiritual cleansing of Christians who have nevertheless fallen into some type of specific sin. So, if we are to follow Christ's example at this point, we must do as Paul admonished in the writing to the Galatians where he says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him, here's the key word, gently. And also there's a warning, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. So how do we seek to restore a brother or sister who has fallen into some type of sin? How do we seek to wash the feet of such a person? We are to take the word of God with which we are all to cleanse our ways and then gently, ever so gently, apply it to our brother or sister that they might respond to it by the grace of God. Now notice the word gently. You see, feet in those days were wounded. They were scraped. They were cut. They were just not dirty. So if we're going to wash one another's feet, we ought, we ought to be careful of the temperature of the water. You will not go to anyone and say, here, put your feet in this bucket of scalding hot water. Nor would you ask him to place his feet in a bucket of ice water. You see, it's just as bad to be too hot in approaching another as it is to be too cold and formal. Not only that, in trying to cleanse others, some Christians do it without any water at all. They try to dry clean feet. They scrape the feet free of dirt, and unfortunately, sometimes they take the skin with it. We can be like, sure, I'll wash your feet. Somebody hand me that Ajax and that Brillo pad. <laughs> now, instead of this, we are spiritual to approach the other person meekly and in love. Foot washing is very gentle, but sometimes painful depending on how beat up the feet are. So how can I gently, though risking pain, humbly and indiscriminately be committed to your radiance, be committed to your cleanliness, be committed to your growth? How can I do that? Well, that's the language of love. And not to put too sharp of a point on it, but if we are not willing to wash feet, then let's keep our mouths closed when we see dirt. When I see dirt, I can either talk about the dirt, which is simply just called judging, or I can involve myself in that person's life by tending to that situation on my knees in humility through intercession. Now, Jesus chose the latter. He didn't simply point to the dirt on the disciples' feet. He did something about it. Now, likewise, the good thing about this is any of us can get started. Now, foot washing does mean it's kind of dirty, it's kind of ugly, it's kind of foul. There's obviously no sense of attraction to want to do it in our flesh, but we can start. Well, how do we start? Well, you don't have to have these great feelings about starting. That's the point. You don't have, this, have to have this attractiveness or desire to even want to do it. 
How do you wash feet? It's simple. You go to the next pair over. Find the people around you. And be very careful you do not just gravitate to people who are attractive to you, who make you feel good about yourself, who therefore really you're just using. You're not really loving them. Instead, you're loving the love you're getting from them. In verse 14, we see that Jesus' disciples are to wash one another's feet, and by that we are admitting that we each, everyone in this room, have dirty feet. But the world will be attracted by the fact that we are willing to relate to one another in this amazingly practical way. As I wash your feet and you wash mine, the world comes to see us as two imperfect people who nonetheless love one another. But we have two problems. First, I don't want to wash anyone's feet. And second, I don't want anyone to wash my feet. And so the problem is mutual and reciprocal. In God's kingdom, however, everyone is important, but no one is indispensable. What I mean is no one is so senior that they have nothing to give, and no one is so young that they have nothing to serve either. The mutuality of this foot washing illustrates this reality perfectly. And by the way, the best way to determine your true attitude on serving is how we react when someone actually treats us like a servant. Do we get all indignant and think of all the unmitigated gall? How dare they treat me like that? The noise of some people. Or do we, like Jesus, serve them anyway? I hope we do realize that as far as our rights go, they are to be subjugated to the word of God and to his kingdom. We are just bond servants. And the last time I checked, slaves have no rights. They just serve at the pleasure of their master. Now, honey, this isn't milk and cookie theology. This is the meat of the word. And it can be very difficult to both do and digest. But I promise you, it is worth it. Look at verse 15 with me. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who has sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Only once in all of the recorded words of Jesus did Jesus announce that he has provided an example for his disciples, and that was when he washed their feet. And only once in the rest of the New Testament does a writer offer an example in speaking of Christ, and that is in 1 Peter 2.21, and that is an example of suffering. Do you know what that teaches us? Serving and suffering are paired in the teaching and the life of the Lord. One does not come without the other. And what servant is greater than his Lord? Now, this is really a story about forgiveness and patience of Jesus with people. Why? Because it doesn't say he washed the feet of 11 people or 10 people. No, it says he washed all of their feet. That means that when he came to Judas, to the feet of the person who was just about getting ready to go arrange for his torment, his torture, and his death, he washed the feet of Judas. He washed the betrayer. He washed the denier. 
He washed the forsaker. He doesn't just serve in spite of who he is. He doesn't serve just in spite of what he is facing. He also serves in spite of who they are, in spite of what they've done or what they're about to do. Now, here's the question. Just as I've given you an example, but what is it an example of? Is it an example of love or is it an example of humility or integrity or courage or patience? Which of the fruit of the Spirit is this? Do you know what we have here? Now, when I first say this, it's going to sound very strange, but it's unbelievably practical. What we have here is what Paul says in Galatians 5 when he insists on using just a singular noun to describe love, joy, peace, and patience, among others. He doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, and so on. He says the fruit singular of the Spirit. We have exactly what he says in 1 Corinthians 13 when Paul says, there are these three, faith, hope, and love. And in 1 Corinthians he says, love believes all things and love hopes all things. Do you see the disparity there? First he says there are three, but then he says they are actually each other. And this is the point. The real fruit of the Spirit always come together because they are coessential. And if they're not all there, then we're missing it to some point. What do I mean? If a person looks loving but is not self-controlled, they're not really loving. In fact, you can look at your own life and you can look at these lists. You can say, I'm really good at a couple of these, but I'm really horrible at a couple of these. And so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No, what Jesus is showing us, what Paul says, what the Bible says over and over is these things are all of one piece. And unless we see that, we won't understand the greatness of what is offered to us. Now, a quick example is I see people who are very, very gentle and sweet, but they're not courageous. They're very gentle and sweet, but they're not very good at confronting sin. Or somebody can come along and say, I know someone who's very self-controlled, but they're also very unhappy. They're self-controlled, which is a fruit of the Spirit, but there's no joy in their life. Very self-controlled, very disciplined, but there's no joy. That's not really biblical self-control. That's pride control. That's a person who looks out there at the world and says, I'm going to get my act together. But without joy, that's not really self-control. In fact, you are mastered and not really even in control. There are also people who seem very patient. In other words, they never complain. They never raise their voice. People are doing wrong things and they say, I'm not going to bring that up. I'm not going to say anything. They seem to be the epitome of patience. But if you get far enough underneath you'll find that very often they are filled with anger and they're very, very scornful of the people you think they're being patient with. So they're not really being patient. I'll tell you one other thing we learn. We also learn here not just how organic the Christian life is, as in don't we see how much we need the Holy Spirit and how much we need the Lord's help if we're going to be people of true character. Now, I don't know about you. When I think about this, I suddenly realize the only way for me to know how spiritually mature I am is to not look at my strengths. Well, why? Well, my strengths have a natural mixture of natural temperament and of natural brain chemistry and all those kind of things. So the key here is not to look at my strengths, 
but to look at my weaknesses. I need to look at the weak links in my life. Look at the fruit of the Spirit and look at the very weakest part of your life, the things that you're the weakest at, and that's how much we will really know just how much the Holy Spirit is controlling our lives. It's only when we begin to look at the weak spots. That's the way you'll know to what level he is truly working. Look, if you have a lot of strengths, but there are certain areas where you have not grown and you do not grow, and furthermore, you don't even care if you grow in those areas. Perhaps certain people are offended by you, or perhaps by yourself you're doing things in the dark that no one else knows about. My friends, that's the place where you look to see whether or not God is truly working in your life. Because if he's not working there, he's really not completely having his way in our lives. But it's not just enough to know these things. Verse 17 says, and this is the hard part, we actually have to do these things. Verse 17, Jesus says, having known these things, now I would like you to start doing them. On the night before he's about to die, Jesus is giving them instructions And he's doing some very interesting and strange things, trying to show them what's going to happen if instead of him just being their teacher, he also becomes their Lord. Instead of him being just someone who informs them, that information they get passes into their life and actually changes them. Jesus is saying, you've listened to many of the things I've said, and you've somewhat learned them, but you haven't looked at who I am and become that. And so, really, you haven't really changed all that much. You haven't become. I've given you an example, but you're not living that way. I've given you this teaching, but I'm just your teacher. It hasn't passed into your life. It hasn't changed you. That's what he's talking about. reminds me a great deal of Psalm 40. It's actually a prophecy about Christ, but I think there's something in it there for us also. There's a great place where the psalmist says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have pierced my ear. Burnt offerings you do not require, but I have come and said, My desire is to do your will, and your law is in my heart. That's in Psalm 40. The psalmist says, You do not require burnt offerings. You do not require sacrifice and offerings. That's an embellishment. Of course God required sacrifices and burnt offerings. But the psalmist understands what God really wants. And so he says, you don't want those things compared to what I'm about to say. He says, you talk about burnt offerings, but what you really want is a heart filled with a desire to do your will. You talk about the law, but what you really want is the law in my heart. That is what Jesus is after, and that is what the psalmist is talking about. Here's the law. The law says, don't lie. But behind the law of don't lie is a heart of integrity. Here the law says help the poor. But behind the law of help the poor is a heart of generosity and humility. Here the law that says don't worry or don't envy. But behind that is the heart of peace and contentment. What Jesus is saying and what the psalmist is saying is, I would like my teaching to pass into your life, and I want my law to go deep into your heart. You see, the point of the law is to become a certain type of person. So it's not just enough to know the truth. We must 
put it into practice. James 1.22 makes it clear when he says, the blessing comes in the doing of the word and not just the hearing of the word. See, the dangerous thing is, even studying this section of John's gospel can stir us emotionally or enlighten us intellectually, but it cannot bless us spiritually until we do what Jesus told us to do with it. That is the only way to lasting happiness, or a better word for that, I think, is joy, which is really being what blessed entails. Verse 17 is the key. The King James translates it this way. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. The sequence is important here. Humbleness, holiness, and then happiness. Now, Aristotle defined happiness as good fortune, fortune joined to a virtuous life that is both agreeable and secure. Well, that might do for a philosopher, but it will never do for a Christian believer. Happiness or joy is the byproduct of a life lived in the will of God. When we walk humbly with others and we walk in God's path of holiness and do what he tells us, then we will enjoy true happiness. Now, the world thinks that happiness is the result of others serving us, but real joy comes when we serve others in the name of Christ. And yet the world is constantly pursuing happiness. But that is just like chasing a shadow as it's always just beyond your reach. The world may ask us, how many people work for you? But the Lord would ask, for how many people do you work? Let's just put it on the line. The world has to be cleaned by somebody, and we do not really understand love if we are ashamed to scrub toilets. When you belong to King Jesus, you can no longer write on your resume, I don't do feet. <laughs> that's precisely what we should do because that's what he does. Now, this is really very liberating. One thing I do know, the only ones among us who are going to be really happy are those who have sought and found how to serve others. So either Jesus is telling the truth when he says we'll be happy if we follow his example and love as he loved, or he is lying. And I have found Jesus to be true in everything he has ever said, absolutely and completely. And here he's saying the way to happiness lies not in agreeing with what he told us to do, not in taking notes on what he's told us to do, but in doing what he's told us to do. So next time you feel depressed or distressed, discouraged or despondent, next time you feel like throwing in the towel, instead do what Jesus did. Instead of throwing in the towel, grab the towel and find some dirty feet to wash and experience the happiness that he has promised. As we finish up today, be sure to keep these lessons in their proper sequence, humbleness, holiness, and happiness. Well, how do we do that? We submit to the Father, we keep our lives clean, and we serve others. That is God's formula for lasting joy. Now, my confidence today is on the last night on which Jesus Christ was here on earth, when he wanted to show his disciples something palpable and physical, something concrete for them to remember what love really was, he washed their feet. And really... If we spend the rest of our lives just meditating on that, I think that is your biggest and my biggest hope for ever succeeding in understanding what love really is.
My beloved, Christians are people who decide to make the sight of Jesus kneeling before us, something we do not deserve, something beyond all hope. When you make that the hub of your being, the hub of your life, the vortex of your life, if you make this thing that gives your life meaning, I tell you, it's nothing but one joy and one surprise after another. And so, let's start serving one another today. And a good way to start would be not to eat up all of Connie's mocha truffle before I get to it. <laughs> Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord, these past two weeks we have watched the King of all glory stoop and wash feet. Nothing should humble us more and nothing should stir us to serve one another more. Change our hearts, O oh God, and make us more like you. Teach us to serve, for we ask it in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.